can almost say Merry Christmas. It is almost here. I, it is hard to believe that Christmas is on Thursday. And for us, I mean, our family, Christmas Eve, Christmas, it all kind of gets, it's all part of one big thing. And so we've got the countdowns happening at our house. We, we've got the devotional book that we've been working through most nights. And we're down to four pages in that. We have one of those little advent calendars. We only got four doors left on our advent calendar. And then we got this little um, chalkboard by our door, and there's only four days left on the countdown, so we're getting really excited because we're in the final stretch here for Christmas. And when you get to the final stretch, you don't want to get sick, right? You don't want to get sick. And I am not a germaphobe. I grew up on a, I was a country kid, and so, you know, we didn't even think really much about germs or anything like that, at least I didn't growing up. But I was at Target and, uh, the other day, and, and I'm at Target. We're in the final stretch of Christmas, right? You don't want to get sick. And, uh, and I see my guy, Scott. If you're a regular at the Shoreview Target, you would recognize Scott. Um, when I have a chance, I try to get in Scott's line if Stephanie's not working or Karen's not working. And, and, and so, uh, so I, 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 I saw Scott. He was there. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go get in Scott's line. Get in Scott's line, but I didn't realize that Scott was sick. And he was really sick. As in checking out my groceries and coughing on them, <laughs> you know, and, and, and what, you know, and telling me about how he's been sick and the stuff he's been coughing up and all this kind of thing. It, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun getting Scott's line, um, but, but not this time, you know, and I'm trying to think in my head, all right, how do I sanitize my groceries, you know, when I get them home and how quickly can I wash my hands and all that, all that kind of thing, because I didn't want to get sick because the kind of sickness that he had was one of those colds where... It, it, you had to take the full prescription if you wanted to beat that cold. I mean, it was the kind where you, you've got you to get on the couch, you've got to drink the fluids, and you've got you to take the full dose of the full medicine if you want to get healed from that sickness. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to come back to it in, in just a little bit, this whole idea of you've got to take the full prescription strength, right? Okay, we'll come back to that thought in a second. But first, I want to bring some people up to speed. I see some new faces here. Actually, truth be told, I was going to bring you up to speed anyway, but I do see some new faces, so it'll be helpful for you. Um, if you want to take out your notes and write this down, here's where we've been. We've been, for the last several weeks, been looking at Luke, this first century physician. He was a real person, and he was writing about real events. And we've spent quite a bit of time um, in this Christmas season looking at that. Luke was a first century physician who set out to learn the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. Why do I say that with such conviction? Because if you look at where Luke can be tested he checks out. Luke, you fact check Luke. His facts check out. Here's an example of what one scholar says. I could have pulled this from all kinds of sources. This is what a guy named John McRae says. I own one of his, his books, uh, he, he, especially with archaeology. He's just so good at that. Here's what he writes. He says, the general consensus from both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is a very accurate historian. He's eloquent. His Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and in archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. Now, of all Luke's writings so far in this series, we've been focusing on what he says about the first Christmas. He says more about the first Christmas than any of the other Gospels, um, and he includes a whole lot of facts. He, he puts a context, a historical context, to his writings. Here's one example of that. He, he says this birth of Jesus took place in the days of Herod, uh, the king of Judea. So he puts a time and place to it, and there's other ancient documents that collaborate this. 
One of them comes from an unlikely source, a tax collector, a first century tax collector. His document was included also in our Bible, vetted out, made it into the scriptures. He, he con confirms the same thing. Matthew also testifies. The birth of Jesus, it was a real event. It took place in Judea. It took place during the days of Herod, just like Luke writes. There's other facts that are collaborated through other evidence. Here's another one of Luke's claims when it comes to the first Christmas. He says this about Jesus' mother. He says, Jesus gave birth to her firstborn son. And then he says this about the son. He was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this one is fun for me. Um, when you look at the collaborating evidence and where it comes from for this passage, it comes from a more unlikely source even than a tax collector. Here's uh, something I found in one of my sources, and then I looked into it a little bit more. One of my sources said this about the place of Jesus' birth. By the early 2nd century AD, so Jesus is born ushering in the 1st century, as in the early 2nd century, within 100 years, even non-believers were widely aware of the tradition that Jesus was born in a cave used as a livestock shelter behind someone's home. And they reported the site of this cave to the emperor Hadrian. Now, as someone who has a naturally skeptical bent, I find facts like this fascinating. That same Roman emperor, you can look up this guy. He's a real Roman emperor, and, and he's responsible for Hadrian's Wall, if you ever heard of that. Anyone ever heard of Hadrian's Wall? All right, that was on the western edge of the Roman Empire. They built this wall, this protective wall, on the western edge of the Roman Empire. Do you know what he did on the eastern front? He suppressed a rebellion on the eastern edge of the Roman emperor, Empire right around the year of our Lord, 135. And on the outskirts of a nowhere tiny village called Bethlehem, they dedicated a sacred grove. They dedicated a sacred grove to, their, to the god uh, Apollos. Is that right? Adonis. Adonis. They dedicated a sacred grove to the god Adonis. The name Adonis means Lord and is related to the Hebrew word Adonai, a title that Jews ascribe to their God. It was as if, he, and he did it right next to the site of a small livestone cave that used to shelter animals, that people said, Jesus was born there. It was as if he said, hey, oh, hey everybody, don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look over here at our sacred grove to Adonis, the Lord, the, 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 the God, Adonai. Everybody look over here. Man, why would he do that? Why would he do that? And just two years, 200 years, get this, just 200 years after Adrian's attempt to distract believers from the birthplace of our Savior, the Jesus movement had turned the world upside down to the point where the Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned a Christian sanctuary on that site that we now call the Church of the Nativity. Something happened. Something happened on the outskirts of Bethlehem on a not-so-silent night in the first century. And Luke wrote about it. He wasn't writing a fairy tale. He was recording events that took place in history and changed the world forever. And Luke, the doctor, didn't stop there. He didn't stop with just recording history. I'd encourage you to write this down. Luke offers a prescription Here's the whole part about prescription. Luke offers a prescription for our broken world. And our world's broken. Anyone watch the news last night? Try explaining to your 
preteen daughters why two police officers were executed in their police car. We have a broken world. And, and, and it's, it's amazing to me that there's academics who try to discredit Luke's account because they say he had an agenda. Of course he had an agenda. He was a doctor. He had a prescription. He had an agenda. That doesn't discredit. What, what doctor doesn't have an agenda? Right? That doesn't discredit. In fact, and if you go back in history, take a look. This is something I came across. Scholar Craig Blomberg, love Craig Blomberg. He writes this. In the ancient world, the idea of writing a dispassionate, objective history merely to chronicle events with no ideological purpose was unheard of. Nobody wrote history if there wasn't a reason to learn from it. So what you need to do is you need to know everybody who was writing history had an agenda. Was Luke accurate when he wrote? And did he have a good agenda? Again, tell me a good doctor who doesn't have an agenda. What's, what's a doctor's agenda? If they're a good doctor, they want to bring healing. And that's what Luke wanted. Now, I know it's cliche to reference dictionary definitions, but this one's too good. Let me show you what the dictionary says about prescriptions. Um, look at this. A couple definitions for prescriptions. It's an instruction written by a medical practitioner, and it's a recommendation that is authoritatively put forward. Doesn't that describe the Gospel of Luke? If you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke. We live in a broken world. And Luke put forth a prescription for our broken homes, for broken hearts and minds and priorities, for broken relationships between neighbors, between races, between nations, for our broken governments and broken institutions and broken attempts to bring about change. So let's look at this. We've been looking at it. Let's look at it again as we bring this series to a close. If you have your Bible, please open with, a, open with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. I want to let you know, too, that we also have a Christmas gift for you here today. If you are new to our church, we have a stack of Bibles at that table and at that table, and we'd love for you to have one. Uh, it's a gift for you, and it's not just at Christmas time. Again, truth be told, we have them there every week, but we'd love for you to take one as a gift from God to you. Here we go. Um, these are some words we've read before. This is Luke. He's talking about his Christmas account. Again, he's reporting history, and he's got a prescription here, and he writes about these hosts of heaven who brought good news to our broken world. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Today, and these are the words of the angel, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. That's what the angel said. Now, the baby that the shepherds found lying in a manger was no ordinary child. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to fast forward 30 years. We've been looking at Luke's account of the first Christmas. Now let's look at what happens when this child grows up, what Jesus says about himself. So we're going to turn now to chapter 9 of Luke, and we're fast forwarding about 30 years. Jesus is now an adult. There are folks who, who are going all in. They're saying, we're going to follow him. We're putting our whole faith in this guy. And, uh, and here's, a, here's a conversation that happened. These are the words of Jesus. Now, we've got, uh, let's see, Jesus in, says in chap, let's see, Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 18. Here's the account. Uh, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that they were one of the prophets of long ago that's come back to life. And then Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. You're God's Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to say this. Let's jump ahead to verse 22. He said, the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be what? What does it say? Killed. Messiah must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Now, as Christians, we don't just believe in the historicity of the manger. We believe in the historicity of the cross. And there's more collaborative evidence for that even than the manger. Jesus' one-of-a-kind birth was overshadowed by his once-for-all death. There is no Savior without the cross. There's no Savior. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's, he's the Savior. There is no Savior without the cross. Jesus had to take up his cross, and Jesus instructs his followers to take up theirs. Let's continue on. Um, Jesus then, right after this, he says this to them all. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, listen to this. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That last sentence, I'd never made the connection. When Jesus came, there was the glory of God. There was the angels. When he comes again, there'll be the glory of God. There'll be the angels. Now, if there's another way for the Savior thing to work, if there's another way for sinners and a holy God to be reconciled, Jesus doesn't point to it here. You catching the importance of that statement? If there's another way for this to work, Jesus doesn't point to it here. You've got Peter saying, Jesus, you're the Christ. You've got Jesus saying, the Christ needs to die. And then you've got Jesus saying, if you want to be saved, take up your cross and follow me. Now, now there's a temptation at Christmas time to not talk like this. There's a temptation at Christmas time to just kind of keep it light and keep it superficially. But I would be engaging in pastoral malpractice if I pointed to a Savior that was full of grace and not truth. Last uh, week, Nick rightly pointed out that the shepherds were filled with fear when the angels appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. And it was more than just a, whoa, oh, it's just angels. Shoot, all right. I thought it was you know, something scary. Wow. You know, it was more than that. It, it, it was when angels appeared, it was often with judgment. And here were these shepherds going, okay, it's the glory of God and I'm a sinful person. There was that dynamic going on too. And I think about that dynamic and I think about our culture in the direction we're headed and how different it is. Because most folks, if they were somehow in the presence of holiness, I don't know if they would share that same fear or that same awe and, and reverence. I mean, when I think about our culture, we live in a culture that asks, who is God that he should judge us? Rather than who am I to question God's judgment? We live in a culture that's more likely 
to refuse to embrace a God that would exile subjects from the kingdom than, than we are to embrace a God who graciously forgives rebels who repent. We live in a culture that reverses the role of creator and creation, father and child, wise and foolish. When Jesus returns, and he's coming back, when he returns in glory and the angels are with him, will you be counted among the disciples? Here, here's another way of wording this. Another way of wording this. Are you placing your full trust? There's a place to write this in your notes. Are you placing your full trust in the great physician? Remember, I, I was talking about how there's certain illnesses, there's certain sicknesses, there's certain times where you've got to take the full dose of the full treatment. I've been on medications before where they said, if you stop taking this medication, you're going to feel better. But if you stop taking this before the full dose, you're going to be worse off than you would have been if you would have continued on. There are some times you've got to take the full trust, the full dose, and I would say Christianity fits in that category. And, and here's the thing I want to say from just experience, just observing. Some of the most miserable people you're ever going to meet, the most cranky, the curmudgeoniest, if that's even a word, some of the, 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 the people that you least want to be like are the people that try to do just a little Jesus. They're some of the, the most miserable people you're ever going to meet. Those who only resist the temptations that aren't tempting to them are some of the most miserable people you're ever going to meet. Those who love the Ten Commandments but don't love their neighbor are some of the most miserable people you're ever going to meet. Those who strive for justice without striving for peace are some of the most miserable, angry, bitter people you're ever going to meet. Those who refuse to cast a stone except at the stone throwers are some of the least people you want to be around. And those who are quick to freely receive but aren't quick to freely give are never going to be happy. Never going to be happy. Now, in contrast to that, in contrast, if you go around the world and you find someone who is peace-filled and joy-filled, some of the people who are the most peace-filled, most joy-filled, most content are people who've gone all in with Christianity. Let me offer an example. In preparation for the series, I read a book. It was a book by a former atheist named Lee Strobel. He, uh, he wrote this book. I put, the, I put it in your notes called The Case for Christmas. So it's just a little short book, worth your time to, to take a look at it. Well, Lee used to work for the Chicago Tribune, the newspaper in Chicago. And one of his assignments was to go and find the poorest of the poor in Chicago and do a series on them. So he went out and, and came across a woman in his investigation who was 60 years old. She was a grandmother. Her name was Perfecta Delgado. And Perfecta, she had painful arthritis, so painful she couldn't work. So she's already in poverty. And her grandkids were in worse shape if she didn't take them in. So she took in her two grandchildren. So they're in poverty. It's, it's Perfecta Delgado, her two grandchildren, Lydia and Jenny. So she takes them in, and they didn't have much to begin with, and then there was a fire. Wiped them out. So now the three had about as close to nothing as you're going to find in the United States. When Lee met them, 
They were living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side of Chicago, and all they had when it came to food and furniture was a small kitchen table and a handful of rice. That's all they had when it came to furniture or food. When it came to clothing, Lydia and Jenny each owned one short-sleeved dress, and they had one thin sweater that they would share. So on a day like today, if they were walking to school, one would wear the sweater halfway, and then they would take it off, give it to the sister who could wear it the second half of the way. That's where they were at. As Lee interviewed this family, he was taken back by those circumstances. But he was blown away by their faith. Here's what he writes. Former skeptic writes this. He says, I never sensed despair or self-pity in that home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith, and they seemed happy. I had everything I needed materially, but I lacked faith. And inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. When Lee's article was published, the people of Chicago stepped up. They responded to this family. And when Lee returned, he came back on Christmas Eve, the house was filled. The house was filled with furniture, decorations, and food. The house was filled with, with warm coats and scarves and, and mittens. And there was even a, a Christmas tree, fully decorated, presents are under it. So Lee comes in, he's just surprised by the generosity. But again, he was surprised by that, and he got shocked by something else. Guess what the Delgados were doing? They were preparing to give away most of what they had just received. And Lee just looks at him, and he goes, why? In his book, he doesn't say this to them, but he's like, I would have been hoarding. You know, I had nothing. I would just be like, nice, thanks, everybody. Well, here's what Perfecta replied, because she was in a different place. She was on a different plane. Perfecta replied in halting English. She said, we have neighbors who are still in need. How can we have plenty when they have nothing? She goes, we did nothing to deserve this. This is all. All this is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. But then she said this. It's not his greatest gift. She said, we celebrate that tomorrow. The greatest gift is Jesus. <laughs> How many of you want more of what she had? All right. I want more of that. I'm in a better place than I was a year ago, better place than I was a year before that, better place than you were. I want more of this. And may I present to you the way to get more of this is the full dose. It is the full dose. It is the, God, you can have everything. It all came from you. Everything I have is a gift from you. I offer it freely back to you. That's, that's the, 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 the prescription. That's the medicine. Well, Lee wanted more of this too. Lee wants more of this. He writes this. He says, they had peace. Despite poverty, I had anxiety despite plenty. They know the joy of generosity. I knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope. I looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual. I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had or, more accurately, the one that they knew. I mean, Lee was a Midwestern guy. He'd seen a whole lot of people that called themselves Christians. He'd seen a whole lot of people that at Christmas time set up a nativity scene, 
people who put a little money in the offering plate on most Sundays, people who cussed a little less, prayed a little more. <laughs> there was something just completely different about Delgado, Perfecta Delgado. Her full trust was in Jesus Christ. Well, Lee wanted more of what she had. And he had been investigating Christianity for some time and, and continued to do so. And he realized, if I want what she has, I can't just want what she has. I have to receive what she has. I need to do something about that. And here's what he did. These are in his own words. He writes this in his book. After spending nearly two years investigating the identity of the Christmas child, I was ready to reach a verdict. For me, the evidence was clear and compelling. I became convinced that if you drill down to its core, Christmas is based on a historical reality. It is a mystery backed up by facts that I now believe were too strong to ignore. I'd come to the point where I was ready for the Christmas gift that Perfecta Delgado had told me about years earlier, the Christ child, whose love and grace are offered freely to everyone who receives him in repentance and faith even someone like me. So I talked with God in a heartfelt and unedited prayer, admitting and turning from my wrongdoing and receiving his offer of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus. I told him that with his help, I wanted to follow him and his ways from here on out. There was no choir of heavenly angels, no lightning bolts, no tingly sensations, no audible reply. I know that some people feel a rush of emotion at such a moment. As for me, there was something else that was equally exhilarating. Look at what he says. Some of you, this is for you. There was a rush of reason. Isn't that good? There was a rush of reason. My head and my heart can agree on Jesus of Nazareth. Over time, however, there's been so much more than that. It was more than a moment. It was more than something he could look back to to say, I made a decision. It was more than that. It was a prescription. Over time, it's been so much more. As I have endeavored to follow Jesus' teachings and open myself to his transforming power, my priorities, my values, my character, my worldview, my attitudes, my relationships have been changing for the better. It has been a humbling affirmation of the Apostle Paul's words, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. She's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then he asks, what about you? Because like any doctor's prescription, you have to decide what you're going to do with it. Am I going to take it? Am I not going to take it? Am I going to take it in the recommended dose or do I know better? And I'm going to take it in a different way. I'm going to mix it up with something else. As cliche as this sounds, there is no greater gift that I or anybody could extend to you this Christmas than to say, respond to God's invitation. To, 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 to say to the Savior who gave everything to us and then for us. Because he went first, didn't he? He doesn't say you go first and then. He went, he went all in. As all in as you can go. It was a father sacrificing his child. It was the child willingly laying down his own life. You cannot go more all in. He went first. Are we willing to say, okay, you can be trusted, God. You can be trusted. And I'll trust you 
with everything. Now, it was interesting. Um, I shared this message at the 930 service, and a wise woman who, um, who was married to a pastor for a whole lot of years before he passed away, she comes up and says, okay, just be prepared now to live this out, what you just said, this whole perfected Delgado piece. Not the, not the good intentions, but the <laughs> hardships coming your way. Because she goes, every time we'd preach on Job, <laughs> guess what would happen in our lives, you know? And, and I just want to tell you that. You, you, you step forward like this, and you go all in. I can tell you, the temptations are most of the time don't go away. The, the, the trials may intensify. There, there's, we live in a sin-filled world, and until Jesus comes back with his glory, with the holy angels, with him, until he casts all sin from the kingdom, we will still live in a fallen world. But I can guarantee you this. If you continue to take that full dose at full prescription strength, there will be something at work in your life that is greater than all that is in the world, and it's going to change you bit by bit, piece by piece, sometimes by leaps and bounds, sometimes incrementally. But things that once held you strong have a looser grip. You, your heart begins to beat closer to the heart of Christ. Your mind begins to think more clearly than ever before. Priorities change. And, and your experience is like Lee's, like the Delgados, like Luke's. You find yourself experiencing a transforming power, a cure that is changing your priorities and your values and your character and your worldview and your attitude and your relationships for the better. So as we bring this series, this Christmas series to a close, let's, let's pause and let's receive that gift. Would you do that with me? Let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you loved us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for the good Dr. Luke who didn't hold back but instead said, here's the prescription. This is more than a historical event. This is a historical event that really matters. God so loved the world that he sent a savior into it. A savior who, who demonstrated God's love by willingly laying down his own life and then dying and then proving his power as he rose again in a new and glorified state. Lord, may we trust that the same thing can happen to us, that if we lay down everything and we take up our cross and follow, that there awaits for us a transformation too, a resurrection, a new life. So Lord, we pray right now that whatever specific cross you would bring to mind, that you would give us the courage right now to lay that down, whether it's our career, whether it's our sexuality, whether it's money and possessions, whether it's forgiveness or lack thereof. Whatever it is, God, whatever you're identifying right now, and, and for some of you, I'm sure there's something right now, it's right in front of you, and you know it's time to lay that down. Lord, would you give us the courage to take up that cross by laying something down and following you. And Lord, we thank you that when we pick up a cross, we don't pick it up alone. But you're right there carrying it for us. You invite us into a, a family like this where we cheer one another on rather than beat one another up. Your spirit is, is, is alive 
and we can invite the, your Holy Spirit to come in and, and to strengthen us and to, to, to transform our minds and our hearts. So thank you, God, for giving everything and making everything possible for this moment where we can receive you. May this Christmas be one that we can look back on and see the, the gift that kept on giving and the fruit that, that comes out of our changed lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.